This is the Week in Addiction Medicine, a podcast resource of timely news and top stories brought to you by the American Society of Addiction Medicine, ASAM. Today is Tuesday, December 20th, and I'm Claire Rasmussen. Our lead story this week, Genetic Diversity Fuels Gene Discovery for Tobacco and Alcohol Use, is in Nature. This study leverages global genetic diversity across 3.4 million individuals from four major clients of global ancestry to power the discovery and fine mapping of genomic loci associated with tobacco and alcohol use. The authors used the data to inform function of these loci via ancestry-aware transcriptome-wide association studies and to evaluate the genetic architecture and predictive power of polygenic risk within and across populations. The authors found that increases in sample size and genetic diversity improved locus identification and fine mapping resolution, and that a large majority of the associated variants showed consistent effect sizes across ancestry dimensions. However, polygenic risk scores developed in one ancestry performed poorly in others, highlighting the continued need to increase sample sizes of diverse ancestries to realize any potential benefit of polygenic prediction. Next is an article in PNAS titled, Compulsive Drug Taking is Associated with Habenula Frontal Cortex Connectivity. The habenula is a relay node between the forebrain and midbrain, playing an essential role in making decisions based on the value of choices. Compulsive drug use is attributed to disadvantageous decision-making and has been associated with dysfunction of frontal midbrain systems. In a rat model of methamphetamine self-administration, addiction-like drug-taking was positively correlated with habenula frontal cortex and habenula substantia nigra functional circuit strength. In contrast, drug-taking behavior akin to recreation use negatively correlated with connectivity in these same circuits. These findings suggest that changes within frontal habenula midbrain circuits are different in quote-unquote addicted versus recreational use rats, and these circuits may serve as unique therapeutic targets for individualized treatment of substance use disorders. A new article in JAMA Network Open is titled Association of Recreational Cannabis Legalization with Cannabis Possession Arrest Rates in the U.S. This cross-sectional study examined whether recreational cannabis legislation implementation was associated with a reduction in cannabis possession arrests in states that had already decriminalized cannabis. The study found a sizable reduction in cannabis possession arrests among adults in states that had already decriminalized cannabis. Recreational cannabis legislation did not seem to be associated with changes in arrest rates among youth or disparities in arrest rates. These findings suggest that implementing recreational cannabis legislation may be associated with a further reduction in adult arrest rates even after a state decriminalizes cannabis. Next, we have a study in drug and alcohol dependence titled Prenatal Cocaine Exposure and Substance Use Disorder in Emerging Adulthood at Age 21. This study recruited over 350 mothers scheduled to give birth between 1994 and 1996. Drug use was determined by biologic screening and or self-report. The study then assessed offspring for externalizing behavior at age 12, as well as substance use at age 15 and substance use disorder at age 21. The relationship between prenatal cocaine exposure and substance use disorder at age 21 was not statistically significant, but two indirect pathways were identified. Prenatal cocaine exposure was associated with externalizing behavior at age 12 and substance use at age 15, 
both of which, in turn, were associated with substance use disorder at age 21. The authors note that these associations could result from genetics and or life adversity. A new study in The Lancet is titled Patient-Centered Models of Hepatitis C Treatment for People Who Inject Drugs. In this randomized controlled trial, people who inject drugs that actively injected within 90 days were randomly assigned to either patient navigation or modified directly observed therapy. The study found that adherence was significantly higher in the therapy group compared to the patient navigation group, with no significant difference in sustained virological response between groups. Increased adherence and treatment completion were associated with an increased likelihood of sustained virological response. The next article, titled Psychedelic Drug Legislation Reform and Legalization in the United States, is in JAMA Psychiatry. In this paper, the authors compiled and reviewed 74 bills to change the legal status of psychedelics, which were considered across 25 states between 2019 and 2022. Of the 74 bills considered, 10 were enacted, 32 rejected, and 32 are still under consideration. Most of the bills specifically mentioned psilocybin and called for decriminalization, either reducing or eliminating penalties. Among the bills for decriminalization, 35% called for some training or licensure to prescribe, and 23% restricted access to specified treatment centers. Our next study is in Primary Care Companion for CNS Disorders, titled Recreational 2-Methyl-2-Butanol Use. This case report describes a 25-year-old man who, on appearance at the ER, had presentations suggestive of ethanol intoxication, undetectable blood ethanol, and a history of use of 2-methyl-2-butanol. The intoxicant 2-methyl-2-butanol is an inhibitor of the GABA-A receptor with a duration of action of 12 to 24 hours. Intoxication resolved over three days in the reported case. Use of 2-methyl-2-butanol is increasing in Eastern Europe and may rise in the United States. Our final article is from the Journal of General Internal Medicine, titled, A Virtual First Telehealth Treatment Model for Opioid Use Disorder. In this study, the authors evaluate a virtual first telehealth opioid use disorder treatment platform designed to deliver care without ever requiring in-person visits. Over 450 patients were enrolled in the program and initiated on buprenorphine, with 69% retained in treatment at 180 days. In addition, 31% of patients resided in rural areas, with 32% having no ex-wavered provider in their zip code. While the authors note additional research is needed, telehealth does enable patients to access medications for opioid use disorder care, when it may not be available in their area, and this care can decrease transportation barriers. This concludes today's episode of This Week in Addiction Medicine. Remember to subscribe to the ASAM Weekly for more exclusive content and our editor's commentary, delivered every Tuesday. Be sure to check us out on social media and asam.org. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.